Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, thank you so much for joining us for Everything Under the Sun, the AccuWeather podcast. I'm Andy Robb from the AccuWeather Radio Network. I'm joined in the studio by executive producer Ken Prell. Ken, how are you? All right, Andy. We're going to be talking all about fires today, both historic and current. And joining us in the studio, we got a couple guests uh, in the studio. Jeff Cornish, meteorologist, as well as volunteer firefighter. And here friend, with of, us. friend of the show. And I friend mean, of the show. In the past. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I'm Jeff. glad to be back. Absolutely. Be back and uh, also, we have a special guest, uh, AccuWeather's correspondent and field journalist, Blake Naftel, is on the line with us as well. Hi, Blake. Hi, how's it going? Uh, we are doing great here. So uh, what we're going to do on today's show, like I said, we're going to be talking about uh, historic fires. And Jeff is going to have an update on some of the wildfires and his experience with firefighting. Absolutely. But we have Blake on the phone. He's joining us uh, on the show today because, well, last year we did an episode about the Great Chicago Fire. But what you may not know was there was another wildfire raging at the same time as the Great Chicago Fire. A fire that's really been kind of forgotten in history because the Great Chicago Fire kind of, you know, overshadows it. Yeah, the Peshtigo Fire. Blake, tell us all about the Great Peshtigo Fire. Well, that event, you know, simultaneously occurred as Chicago began burning. So at 250 miles to the north of uh, Chicago is the small logging community of Peshtigo, and that's just north of Green Bay for about 40 minutes. And in 1871, that was the uh, one of the stronghold bases of uh, 19th century lumbering. The uh, little tidbit of uh, irony here. William Ogden, who uh, was you know associated with Chicago and being first mayor there, uh, was had a lumber mill in Peshtigo and was bringing wood down to Chicago, you know, through railroad and steam ships, basically to build and expand uh, an ever-growing Chicago. So there, there's a little twist to this. Um, because he was highly associated with Chicago and Peshtigo at the same time. But uh, that evening, uh, when the fires began, I need to step back here and just talk about the climate setup of 1870, 1871. There was great periods of drought throughout the Midwest, Great Plains, into the Great Lakes. At the same time, you had expansion occurring, lots of logging, very little conservation, no conservation practices whatsoever with uh, slash and burn logging frequently just being the norm. Uh, debris was left, you know, large virgin forests were hauled out of these regions and uh, that just sat and baked. So there was a lot of fuel out there in uh, northern Wisconsin, Michigan, into Minnesota, basically forest country. So ash up to 1871, uh, that fall, there had been no rain. It was just a tinderbox there. And sure enough, 
ongoing fires had been pretty prevalent in the months leading up because fires would just be lit. You know, stumps would be burnt to the uh, you know, kerosene thrown on them and just left. And they would just smolder and fires, wildfires, forest fires would just spurt up. Wow. Uh, this was common back then. Everything revolved around fire, too. Uh, people used fire for their, you know, day-to-day lives to to cook, to to get rid of trash, to everything from making metal uh, or an iron fixture. So it, this was a, kind of a man-made disaster that really took on epic proportions, and not just in Peshtigo, but Chicago, as well as other portions of the Great Lakes into Michigan and also other portions of Illinois. Champaign-Urbana had a fire the exact same night. So this was a widespread event. The catalyst on top of all the tinder that was out there was a strong low pressure system that was working through the uh, plains and Midwest. Not much moisture associated with just very strong southwesterly winds. And those once that started working into the Great Lakes, that really carried these fires uh, great distances and fanned them out. And the atmospheric conditions were prevalent, uh, especially up in the Peshtigo region, for a literal firestorm. Uh, eyewitnesses describe uh, tempests of fire, fire tornadoes uh, whipping through the forests, through the village, and it was a terrible tragedy because this had, there was warning, you know, if you just paid attention to your surroundings uh, in the weeks that uh, led up to this disaster on October 8th, you know, fire was everywhere. The atmosphere uh, was just filled with smoke. Just imagine that, uh, living in that environment for weeks on end and tolerating it. And then suddenly this enormous fire just vents through town. Yeah, not only that, but, you know, the wind was a huge factor with, with wind gusts over 100 miles per hour. It looks like it says it was o- over 100, about 110 miles per hour, which uh, really helped, uh, you know, fuel that fire, correct? Yeah, th- those were local reports at the time, uh, probably just estimates within that firestorm as it worked up from Green Bay through uh, Acanto up towards Apeshtigo. By the time it reached the town, it was literally its own weather system, as you've seen typically in modern times out in the, the West in Northern California and up into Canada. Same scenario. The town of Peshtigo at that point in time was only 1,200 residents, and everybody just fled to the river. That was the only place that they could really, you know, ex- try to escape this, you know, literal hell on earth that was going over them. Several people made it, but the vast majority of the town did not. Uh, 800 people died uh, in that town alone that were confirmed. On top of that, there were many other folks in the outlying communities that uh, were unaccounted for, never uh, really. Uh, noted in the death tolls, and that's why there are estimates up to 1,500 to 2,400 people associated uh, perished with this fire uh, in 1871. So when you think of Chicago and what was happening there at the same time, yes, that was absolutely horrible. Uh, 300 people or, or more died there. Uh, many others were injured and the town burnt down. You just think north of there in that little rural section of Wisconsin, uh, far different 
uh, scenario and similar conditions as well. Yeah, that's the crazy thing about this, Blake, is that, you know, the accurate death toll uh, could never really be determined. Uh, you know, most of the local records were actually destroyed in this fire. Yes, that's true. And uh, best account of the entire ordeal was by the Reverend Peter Pernan, who was based between Peshtigo, Marionette, and uh, Acanto. And without that vast description of the before events and afterwards, during, if in fact, uh, he was one of the f- people that survived the fire in the river, the cold Peshtigo River. Much would not have been very well known about this fire until word started spreading and people from adjoining towns, Madison, further south, started coming up to investigate it. And the cold water was also a reason why, you know, there were some fatalities, correct? Because people were jumping into it to escape the fire. But, you know, that would lead to instances of hypothermia or even drowning. They were there for hours. Uh, It wasn't just uh, being in the water for 30 minutes or so. Uh, Residents stayed in that river for up to five hours at a time. And this was October. It was a cold river. And most people did not swim in those days. The river was not used for recreation. Uh, it was a lumber river. It was very unfamiliar territory to be sheltering in a river or covering yourself with mud just to survive uh, the flames that were flying over you and just devastating everything around you. Yeah, it, terrible conditions. Um, reports have folks coming out of the river probably like two, three in the morning. And this fire really had begun uh, probably around nine or 10 in the evening. Not a pleasant scenario to think about. The high winds that you mentioned earlier, uh, Blake, you know, caused almost like a kind of fire tornado where like, you know, rail cars were were actually literally airborne. I mean, that's that's so rare, right? Yeah. Yeah. And railroad tracks just completely obliterated the whole town short of a few things remaining standing, a killing, part of a woodenware factory steeple. There was nothing left. And on top of that, you know, the fires didn't just stop at Peshtigo. They fanned northward all the way into the portions of the upper peninsula of Michigan. Flip also to the fact that embers were being carried, you know, far distances into the mid-atmosphere. Now, this isn't confirmed, um, but fires were also touched off potentially by embers from the Wisconsin and Illinois fires over in Michigan along the lakeshore from South Haven, Saugatuck to Holland. The early community of Holland, Michigan had a very substantial fire. And that continued across the mid part of the state in spots through Lansing had reports of fires, Grand Rapids, and then another vast fire over near Port Huron through the Thumb. At the same time, you had another fire occurring almost simultaneously up in from Manistee to Alpena in northern lower Michigan, burning down that section of the forest. So multiple fires all at uh, all at once between October 8th, the evening into the 9th. And the fires really didn't subside until the 10th. Jeff, with those conditions, your thoughts on on that. How unlikely is that of a scenario? It's an incredible scenario. You know, a lot of the time we associate the uh, brush fire season in the Great Lakes in the Northeast with 
the springtime, right before things really green up, when uh, the f- formerly living vegetation, you know, from the previous uh, growing season, uh, has yet to green back up. And um, a lot of the time, if we get a dry spell in March or early April, we're in big trouble. Uh, but it takes a significant drought to produce those kinds of conditions into the fall. You know, growing up in the Philadelphia area, uh, summer of late summer of 1999, we had a spectacular drought, and we were we had brush fires on a daily basis, mm-hmm. but. You know, life is a little easier now than it was in the 1800s. <laughs> right. Uh, suppression That's techniques thing, are much yeah, better. That's one we have to really keep in perspective as we're talking about this. Absolutely. But, you know, this kind of thing can happen again, and um, especially in more remote areas, it, it can absolutely happen. Uh, and, you know, in some ways, we're in way better shape now than we had been in the past. But in other cases, we are producing our own fires in more volatile ways now than in the past. If you look at how people are building into uh, the, you know, the urban-rural interface there in the uh, the rugged terrain of parts of California, mm-hmm. um, you know, everybody wants a great view out their backyard. They have the infinity pool and all that. It's mm-hmm. fantastic uh, living, I guess, until fires pop up. Right. Uh, and uh, and now you have real volatile, uh, dangerous situations where really it should naturally be left uh, just to the to the wild. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're building in more dangerous places. So, you know, you could look at this either way. Um I imagine if this happened today, I can only imagine what the the 2019 media landscape would do with, you know, a day like that. Right. Um, But, you know, Blake tells a good story. He's uh, he's been a storm chaser and he's a weather historian as well. You know, I think the the Great Pestigo Fire probably is our nation's worst natural disaster that a lot of people have never heard of. You know, a lot of people know about the Galveston hurricane in 1900. But uh, this fire killed as many people potentially as uh, Katrina. As Blake said, this is not the most notable fire in the history books, even that day in the Great Lakes region, the Chicago fire. Uh, one of those cases where the big cities seem to often get a little more Of course, more they always attention. dominate the, uh, the news cycle. So, is right. that, yeah, today. that was the question yeah. that I was going to ask. So, I mean, I feel like I, I kind of knew the answer. But, Blake, is that the reason why, one of the reasons why the Peshtigo fire was, was kind of forgotten about? Did it just kind of get left behind because everyone was focused on Chicago? Well, think back to 1871. Communications were really uh, limited to telegraph wires. Hmm. All of those lines were burnt uh, leading up to Peshtigo, and those were uh, connected for a time. So there's no way to get word out. The earliest newspaper accounts I found uh, were from the 13th of October from Madison. And that was when word had finally carried down that, yeah, there had been a fire in Peshtigo. The, uh, so you're talking almost had, a week later before it actually got <laughs> anywhere else. Yeah, several days. Uh, but the big aspect is that uh, Governor Fairchild at the time uh, sent all the resources that he had to aid the Chicago area hmm. from Wisconsin. There was no uh, word up until his wife, uh, Francis Fairchild, learning about the Peshtigo fire Uh, Once he was down in Chicago, that there had been an even worse tragedy further north, that help was waylaid up to uh, Peshtigo and points that further north. So fortunately for her, she was able to get a couple of trains to head north with supplies. And uh, that is really when the extent of what had happened up there started getting out just back and forth from train car rides and people aiding in the disaster that had unfolded up there. So it was, uh, yeah, uh, so many different factors, such a different world, for sure. Just uh, there's no instant communication or texting or photos. It's, hey, almost a week later, this this maelstrom has unfolded up there. So over a million acres burned, just incredible stuff. Yeah, it says uh, 1.2 
million acres of forest have been consumed, which is unbelievable to think about. Yeah. And that, you know, this is just one of several fires that day, that two day stretch. And that was one of the questions you answered earlier, Jeff. I was going to ask, you know, can something of this scale like the Peshtigo fire, can this happen again? And I'd, Jeff says, yes. I think it could happen. I mean, I, right now, I and I, you know, we're not fear mongers in any way, and, and mm-hmm. we're in far better shape. Fire suppression doesn't compare to uh, the 1870s now, way better. But you look at places like Lexington, Kentucky, they haven't had measurable rain for 31 days now. Um, and, you know, if we got the wrong set of ingredients here, if we had a gusty front roll in with very limited moisture, uh, parts of Tennessee and Kentucky have been very, very dry here uh, because it has been so dry. The sun is more effective in driving the temperature up. They've had extreme heat, uh, mid to upper 90s, 98 degrees uh, on Monday of this past week in Louisville. Um, so, you know, it's been a very hot, dry time there. Uh, and um, the fuel for wildfire is absolutely there even though it's not really present in Pennsylvania because we've had maybe a slightly drier than average start to fall, but mm-hmm. we're not doing bad here compared to them. And Blake, if uh, if anyone's interested in uh, following you online, uh, where can they find you? Well, you could just search my name, Blake Naftel. I'm on Twitter, so that's pretty easy to, to come across. And sorted amount of websites associated with severe weather history, storm chasing history, and tornadoes out there too. So I'm fairly easy to track down. Well, we'd like to thank you for joining us for On Everything Under the Sun to talk about the Peshtigo fire. And I really think that uh, coming up in the near future, we would love to have you back on again to talk about more historical events. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun talking. Thank you, Blake. Thanks, Blake. Such an interesting story, you know, to find out all about the Great Peshtigo Fire. And, of course, you can always go back and listen to our older podcast about the Great Chicago Fire uh, from last year. Yeah, that's right. Back on episode 20 with uh, uh, Evan Myers. Evan Myers, the, uh, one Wonder half Insider of, yep, podcast. You got it. And we are still in the studio with uh, Jeff Cornish, meteorologist here at AccuWeather, as well as a volunteer firefighter. So, Jeff, I want to start by asking... Your experience with firefighting, when did it start? When did you become interested? And how long have you been doing it for? Yeah, I uh, became a, a junior vi- uh, junior firefighter in uh, the Philadelphia suburbs, a little town called Worcester, mm-hmm. 25 miles northwest of the city. My dad uh, was a fire chief for that uh, volunteer department for 27 years. and So uh, it's in the blood. It's in the blood, <laughs> and it absolutely is. We have uh, here at State College, we have you know three, four generation mm-hmm. long families that have uh, you know have involvement as well. And my brother is a volunteer firefighter. He's uh, actually he was a rescue captain here with Alpha for six years, or he was here for six years, and for part of that time he was a rescue captain. And now he's back uh, in the Philadelphia suburbs, in the same department as my dad. Oh, very nice. That's yeah, cool. Awesome. 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 So uh, tell us about some of your experience uh, with firefighting, not just how long you've been doing it. We just covered that. But, you know, some of the things that that you've done in your career as a volunteer, maybe has there been something that was particularly dangerous? Uh, Well, you know, we try to we try not to put ourselves in danger as much as possible. Right. Uh, And, you know, statistically, while people watch the movies and they see, uh, you know, it's not not like backdraft. Statistically, the most dangerous thing for firefighters is heart attacks and then issues on the road, you know, standing out in the highway, foggy uh, incidents on uh, on the interstate and that kind of thing. So the statistics, you know, sometimes the things we fear Mm -hmm. uh, might be um, a little bit more Hollywood. Yeah, uh, terrorism, things like that, which are still problems. Mm-hmm. But the cheeseburger may actually be the thing to take us <laughs> out, you know. And that's not going to sell many newspapers. But uh, you know, it, but still, yeah, we absolutely put ourselves sometimes in in uh, dangerous situations. Structural firefighting is never going to be a totally safe thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
Yeah, it, it, I've been a member of three different departments, one in the Philadelphia suburbs. Uh, the Alpha Fire Company here in State College is something that, that I'm personally proud of. We have about 100 active members. Um, 96 of us are, are volunteer. And, and that's uh, the great thing about that. I mean, volunteer to go out there, you know, it is dangerous. Yeah. yeah. And and people are being just selfless, you know, that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's fun. It's fun. And and here as a volunteer, it's fun because we have 100,000 people in our first due area during the school year. Um, and we cover about 100 square miles. So we have a mix between farmland and rural uh, rural land. And then also a somewhat urban area, you know, downtown State College. We have 12-floor buildings and things mm-hmm. like that. So um, as a volunteer, we could do the kinds of things that they do in the big cities, at least at times. <laughs> you know, it's been – I was a member here for six years from 2000 to 2006, moved away for 11 years, and then came back. Um, and um, the number of calls that we run has increased the number of legitimate structure fires has decreased. Really? And, um, you know, life is a little safer now in many ways. Uh, fire codes are stronger. Code enforcement does their job. Yeah. Um, and they save a lot of lives, even though it may not seem as exciting or it doesn't have that same Hollywood feel. Right. But, uh, but code enforcement, they do a fantastic job. And also our appliances are safer. Wiring is generally better. And building construction improves. Um, but still, if you get off the beaten path a little bit, you can get into big trouble again with uh, especially older buildings. And, you know, no, nobody's immune. You can have a brand new, well-built building still uh, cause big trouble. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And if you've ever seen, you know, the AccuWeather Network or on AccuWeather.com, Jeff is uh, one of the go-to guys, if not the go-to guy, when it comes to talking about wildfires and about fires. Uh, Jeff, h- how do you feel that you being a, me- a meteorologist helps you uh, not only as a firefighter, but a- as your understanding of-, of wildfires? How does that help you? I think it absolutely helps. You know, wildfire behavior is absolutely dependent on the weather. Um, it all comes down to relative humidity. Uh, and wind speed, and also just the preceding conditions uh, that lead to the state of the vegetation, whether it's been wet or dry in the hours and days and months that lead up to any given point. Um, and looking at different um, types of weather patterns, um, you know, Southern California, if you, have a, if you have a stiff offshore wind and the Santa Ana winds are, uh, uh, are howling, then you have a major volatile situation. Uh, if you have a stiff onshore wind, you may still have some trouble, but the nature of the air and the dew point's a little higher. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, as a meteorologist, it certainly helps to understand the big picture um, and also have a respect for the erratic nature of, you know, thunderstorms popping up over the mountains of New Mexico. A few miles away can can wreak havoc with um, the local wind landscape, which can produce some erratic wind behavior and fire behavior uh, for fires nearby. And I, I bring that up as an example because I got to go to the Ute Park fire uh, in June of 2018. That's right. Yeah, that was that. one of the last times we talked. Yeah, yeah you yeah, called yeah, in yeah, from yeah. that. And yeah. that was neat for me. I mean, because I'm from the east and the biggest wildfire I have ever been part of was a few hundred acres at Roth Rock State Forest in central Pennsylvania, um, the Treaster Kettle Fire in 2006. But that was a few hundred acres. This was a 36,000 acre wildfire. Totally different scale out west. I could abs- I, I couldn't even imagine. Yeah. Completely <laughs> different perspective, I'm Absolutely. sure. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, to kind of look at. Well, let's get into uh, this season. Through the end of September and into October 1st, about 50,000 large wildfires. And again, large is very subjective. Uh, but this year, we have had about 40,000 if you keep it apples to apples. So we're down about 20%. That's good news. Yep. Um, and uh, it's tough to, you know, with, for me, unless I look at the data, it's really tough to kind of keep my eye on on a true north. And I, sometimes I almost seem critical of the media, and I'm part of that. <laughs> but 
but video is such a compelling thing, and it and it, there's an emotional response when we see video, and uh, it's tough to compare. You know, anybody can capture great video of a, a major weather event, yeah. and it can look like the sky is absolutely falling. And there are problems, and the long-term trend of acreage burned is up. If you look at year after year after year, for the most part, the, the average. But this year, we are down 20% in the continental U.S., which is good news. Uh, on the other hand, and we're, we're dramatically down in the northwest, uh, but the exception is in Alaska. Alaska had a blowtorch of a summer on Alaskan standards. They had lots of record heat. They were very dry for a good chunk of the summer. And in Alaska, they averaged about a million acres burned. Um, wow. And they, it, it, that's a lot. That's about as many acres burned in a typical year in Alaska as that Peshtigo fire wow. uh, on its own. Yeah. Uh, so in one way, you could say that, that Peshtigo fire was huge. But a, a million acres is a lot. That's your typical year in Alaska. This year, they burned about 2.5 million. Hmm. So this was... More than twice average, uh, much worse than normal in Alaska, and a lot of that expanded into western parts of Canada as well. So they had uh, a really bad wildfire season there, uh, but on the other hand, the northwestern continental U.S. was way below average. Um, in fact, uh, through uh, early September, only 178,000 acres burned in the northwestern continental U.S., and last year, it was um, 1.2 million. The year before that, 1.1 million. So we were down well below that, you know, 1.1 million, 1.2 million. This year, under 200,000 acres into early uh, into early September in the continental uh, northwest U.S. And I think we could basically say that the fire danger in the northwestern U.S. has ended now. We've had big snow. Once the snow begins to fall, um, you could put a fork in it. And the snow is restricted to the higher elevations for the most part, some yeah. of the interior lowlands of Montana. Uh, but uh, the moisture has returned, and it doesn't look like we're going to return to significant volatility up there in, in Washington and Oregon. California, it's still too early to give any kind of an all-clear because those Santa Ana winds can blow into November, as we saw with the Thomas fire, October, November. Uh, still a real volatile time there, you know, until after Thanksgiving when we really get good moisture into the southwest. Uh, we can't give the all-clear there. And you can stick with AccuWeather.com um, as well as the AccuWeather Network for for all the information because you're always <laughs> – We do our best. You're always on there. <laughs> well, man. I don't know. I mean, we should mention – This guy's always on top of everything. Oh, he is. Yeah. <laughs> I should mention, you know, I feel like this, the conversation is not complete without at least mentioning Yeah, Arizona did have uh, its fifth largest wildfire in its state history earlier this summer, the Woodbury Fire. And that was a big one. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there are always outliers, but – Compared to normal, Colorado, most of New Mexico, California, Nevada, we've been okay in those other states. Before we wrap up, I did have one more question I wanted to ask you. What do you have? What is your favorite thing about being a firefighter? I think being able to help people. I have mm-hmm. kids. You look at life differently when you have kids, I think. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one, and I can't take credit for this, but one of my uh, friends, another firefighter, says you, you, know, you get the chance to help people when they're having their worst day in their life. Um, mm. So, you know. I would want somebody to be there for me, and I think it's uh, meaningful to be able to help other people out in those cases. That's a, that's, that's great pr- perspective. Yeah, right no, it is. That's that's well, and you guys do this. You know, anything yeah. in the weather enterprise, yeah, we're here to make a profit for one reason. We've mm-hmm. got to put food on the table, but there's also a greater purpose that we serve in, in weather information. Right. Um, and, um, you know, it's not just a matter of convenience. Sometimes it really is life safety. Mm-hmm. And, Jeff, you need more follows, too. So if people want to find you <laughs> online, because this guy, he knows well, this stuff, man. Where can we find you? Uh, I am uh, on both Facebook and Twitter, at Storm of Corn. There we go. I love, I love that. it. Yeah, it's great. Which is also your uh, which is also your fantasy team name. That is, yes. Yeah. I guess I found how's your, it works. How's so your I, team doing this year? Uh, 
Not great. I'm, I'm at 500 right now. Yeah, that's where, yeah. that's where I am too. I started so. stronger than yep, I am right yep. now. You got to start listening to Field Conditions, the AccuWeather Fantasy Football Podcast. Is that Dean Devore? Uh, no, it's actually Brian Thompson. Brian Thompson. Yeah, okay, Brian that's Thompson's right. Yeah. Got all the inside information. I got you. Yeah, we might have to get him on. on a exactly. Yeah, well, absolutely. I'm no expert on that. <laughs> Jeff Cornish, uh, meteorologist as well as vi- volunteer firefighter from the AccuWeather Network, joining us today on Everything Under the Sun. Thanks, buddy. All right, thank you guys. Appreciate it so appreciate much. It. And of course. Our thanks to Blake Naftel again for talking to us about the great Peshtigo fire. And we will be back with a brand new episode next week. For Ken Prowl, I'm Andy Robb. Thanks for listening to Everything Under the Sun. We'll talk to you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.